Hey, this is Gabriel from the Acton Institute. Welcome to this special edition of Acton Line. Don't worry, we're keeping to our Wednesday schedule. We just wanted to release this bonus episode because we have a special event happening here in person at Acton's headquarters in Grand Rapids, Michigan on October 8th. It's our very first annual academic colloquium on markets and morality. I've invited our research team to tell you all about it. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to a special edition of Acton Line with the Acton Research Team. We're going to be talking about an upcoming conference that might be of interest. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I'm joined by Dylan Palman, Editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and Research Fellow at Acton. I'm also joined by Sarah Negri, Research Project Coordinator at the Acton Institute. Today is the special edition of Acton Line in which we'll be discussing the Acton Institute's first annual academic colloquium on markets and morality. The theme of the colloquium will be neo-Calvinism and modern economics. Our discussion today will be a little broader, exploring the nature, audience, and purpose of academic conferences, as well as the particular appeal of this conference and the importance of research into the intersection of neo-Calvinism and modern economics. This colloquium will be hosted at the Acton Building in Grand Rapids, Michigan, on Friday, October 8th, 2021. We will be providing registration information in the show notes for this episode. Dylan, Sarah, welcome to Acton Line, and thank you for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dan. So before we get into the nitty-gritty, Dylan, what, what exactly makes an academic conference an academic conference? Yeah, so um, for those unfamiliar, um, an academic conference is a little different than, say, uh, you know, a featured lecturer or speaker or that sort of thing, or even uh, distinct from our, our popular Acton University uh, conference uh, that we do every summer. Uh, in the, at an academic conference, what you have are uh, usually professors, but other researchers as well, um, academics, uh, presenting papers. Um, and the, what these are are works in progress. They are literally cutting edge um, of what they're working on, the the ways in which they're trying to advance our knowledge of whatever particular discipline or subdiscipline or topic uh, that they're working on. And it's the sort of thing that maybe, you know, a few years from now it'll be an article and a few years after that it might end up in a book or a textbook or something like that. But you're really seeing things as they're still uh, being developed. Um, so that's that's kind of the idea. It's not to say that they're all going to show up and, and – uh, you know, just have a, a bunch of like post-it notes that they're talking from or anything like that. But um, but the idea is that you come and you get feedback from your peers and from others, um, and then you're able to revise and you're able to to get a good direction for for where your thesis is going, what weaknesses it may have that you need to address, um, and that kind of thing. Excellent. So you're the editor of Journal of Markets and Morality. Mm-hmm. This conference is sponsored by the journal. Yes. Um, so what? What's the rationale behind that? Why is Acton and why is the journal in yeah. particular hosting this particular conference? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so over the last year, it really, you know, since the, the start of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I've been getting a lot of emails from different academic conferences across the country and across the world even uh, being canceled. And very understandably so. I'm very happy to some degree that, my you know, my academic colleagues um, – cared about public health and safety, and they said, hey, let's just take this year off. Um, but like many people, um, 
since that time, I've been a part of quite a few Zoom meetings uh, and other other virtual um, discussions to the point where I wonder if some of them maybe canceled a bit too hastily. Not to say that presenting a paper over Zoom is the same thing as being in person because the, the other great aspect of an academic conference is the networking. It's the people you meet and it's the connections you make and the, the conversations you have over coffee or over lunch and that kind of thing. Um, but at the same time, especially for young scholars, uh, presenting a paper at a conference is an important step along the process of publication. And young scholars, uh, especially if they're trying to teach at universities and colleges, they need to build up their CV, their their academic resume, um, in order to advance their career. Um, and basically, they've they've had a whole year where none of those initial first step opportunities were available to them, or at least many of them were canceled. Uh, so I, I saw a real need. This was back in maybe January, February. Um, and I was looking at the journal's budget. And there's so the journal also has a need in that we always want people contributing to the journal. Um, and I want people to know about it and know about how great I think it is. Uh, I want people, I want academics to be peer reviewers and we need book reviewers, all that sort of thing. So this is, uh, I think, in the interest of the journal as well. Um, so it, it's being funded out of the journal's budget. And, you know, as uh, your introduction made clear, I'm the editor, the executive editor of the journal, um, and I'll be hosting and organizing the conference. So um, so that was the idea. So back in January, February, I didn't really know what would the state of things be in terms of uh, the pandemic and, um, you know, health and safety restrictions and all of that. So I kind of planned the conference to be flexible, that if there were still a lot in place, we could do it a mostly kind of virtual thing uh, with Zoom and all that uh, or other other platforms. Um but thankfully, because of, you know, vaccination rates in Michigan and other sorts of things, a lot of that has been uh, removed so we can do it's a mostly in-person conference. Uh, however, we're able to, to keep it truly international and in that we have two presenters who will not be with us, but they'll be presenting via live video. Um, so uh, I, I like that we now, you know, one of the interesting uh, changes in this post not quite post-pandemic, but this 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 new world uh, that we've emerged into is that uh, there's more flexibility, I think, for scholars and others uh, who maybe can't travel for a variety of reasons. In this case, there's still many travel restrictions. Um, but there's no reason why we, we can't have uh, their talents uh, on display at our conference as well. So I'm happy that we're able to do that. Um, and I, like I said, I think it, it really fills that that need not only for young academics, but also for the journal to, to keep... Uh, keep people interested and hopefully uh, keep submissions and reviewers um, responsive to uh, what we do. Now, in my capacity at ACT, and I've attended a lot of academic colloquia, conferences, I've never presented a paper, but the nature of these events is kind of intuitive to me. Sarah Negri, who's also here with us, this is going to be her first academic colloquium of this type. Sarah, did you have any particular questions about how this how this might be different from other from other sorts of things that you've done? Sure. Yeah, Dylan, you've spoken a lot to how this conference could be really helpful for uh, the presenters to be able to share some of their research, what they've been working on and receive feedback from their peers. Um, how could this be helpful for attendees and um, kind of what would they get out of something like this? Because some of conferences that I've gone to, or just, even just talks at my university, I don't have a lot of experience, but I always found them super interesting, especially when you'd have guest lecturers and then time for questions and answers. Um, and this seems like 
a conference that would be very focused on specific research topics where you might not understand every paper that's being read, but there might be a couple that really pique your interest and you'd learn a lot. Um, and that's kind of what is appealing to me about it. I don't know much about the topic, and maybe you could explain a little more about the topic as well. But what's the appeal there for uh, maybe younger people like me that are sort of academically inclined but don't necessarily have the experience? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so uh, my first conference I attended, I was an undergrad. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. It turns out I actually am an academic and I presented papers. But uh, at the time, I was just interested in uh, – it was a theology conference. I was interested in theology. And um, I mean, one thing I, I think as a student uh, that was eye-opening for me, um, and it's, it's kind of strange in hindsight that more people don't know this, but – as a student, it was revealed to me that my professors have to write papers too. Yeah. Um, that, you know, it's not just us writing papers for them, but they, they do this whole thing too at a much higher level. And um, even just seeing them, in a sense, practicing what they preach uh, uh, was, I think, a very healthy thing uh, to experience. Um, and then it, it, it got me thinking in all sorts of ways in terms of um, what does it look like to be a thoughtful Christian, um, you know what are there? What are the limits? Are there any limits to to what we can talk about and think about from a theological point of view? Um, and and I remember actually at at that conference there was a Q and A time after each paper, and I asked a question there. You know, so I wasn't I wasn't an expert, I wasn't a professional of any sort, uh, but I even had people afterwards saying, "Well, that was a really good question." You know, so. Um, I don't know. I have I personally maybe this is kind of naive of me, but I have this attitude that anybody can learn anything. And I think that's the right attitude to have. Um in fact, I'm I'm very fond of a quote from uh the ancient stoic philosopher Epictetus. Uh he says uh, he's talking about philosophy, but he says I think this applies to everything. He says if one would learn a uh, wish to learn philosophy, one must first of all put away conceit. For it is impossible for a man to begin to learn when he has a conceit that he already knows. Uh, mm-hmm. And this, the secret the, that people don't realize is that the people presenting these papers, as I said, these are like rough drafts. They're works in progress uh, in many cases. You don't become an academic because you already know everything. You come, become an academic because you realize how little you know at least if you're a good academic, uh, you, you realize that, oh, there, I have so much more to learn and you just, you can't get enough of it. Um, and that's something that I think should be open to everybody uh, to some extent. Like maybe not everybody's presenting papers, but I think if you just love learning and you're interested in what we do here at Acton, uh, exploring the many intersections between faith and economics, then this conference is for you. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I have a, a favorite quote as well from... Um, a philosopher from the Renaissance time, uh, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, and he said, I have never studied philosophy for any other reason than that I might be a philosopher. Mm. And so just seeking that wisdom, that's something that really appeals to me. So I'm I'm very excited for the conference. Awesome. Now, there's a very particular, two very particular types of wisdom that we're going to be talking about at this conference. The first is, is Neo-Calvinism. Mm-hmm. Now, 
this is tricky because there are a lot of people who aren't familiar with Calvinism, right. let alone let alone 2.0 right. or whatever it is, <laughs> what, what the Neo is that makes it the, the secret sauce that makes it Neo-Calvinism as opposed to regular old Calvinism. Mm-hmm. So what? give us some historical background on exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about Neo-Calvinism. Some listeners might be familiar with Abraham Kuyper. He's an example of this. Mm-hmm. But this is a broader tradition that, that t- with many contributors and, and yes. many central themes. Yeah, so Neo-Calvinism is typically uh, traced back to Abraham Kuyper um, and his work in the Netherlands. Abraham Kuyper was a theologian, pastor, statesman, church founder, educator, editorialist. Um, I believe he wrote, um, it was over 240 works, distinct works in his time. Some of those are multi-volume works, and that's not even including, he he did uh, a daily newspaper editorial for one newspaper and then a weekly one and another so he's literally writing like Whoa. eight editorials a week uh he just he I, i've compared him to alexander hamilton if anyone's familiar with the musical hamilton uh that, that he's non-stop there's this whole song about how hamilton just can't stop writing I just watched that last night <laughs> yeah you're right so that's kuiper kuiper's like the dutch alexander hamilton um at least that's how i think of him um and what's I guess Neo about his approach is not so much like he is in his self-identity. He's very much a traditional Calvinist. In fact, that was a big turning point in his life that he was a more kind of theological liberal uh, in his young days and uh, studying at Leiden. Um, and he he became a pastor and he saw the simple, pure faith of some of the common folk uh, in his church. And he realized that, that they had something he didn't. And he wanted that. Uh, And that was part of uh, an important conversion back to a more conservative kind of Calvinism. But he didn't for that then set aside all of his learning uh, and his curiosity. And he saw their needs and he wanted to use everything at his disposal, all of his intellectual power uh, to advocate for it. So that looked like in some cases he found his own church denomination because he wasn't satisfied with the state church. And he said, you know, this is they're, – they're compromising on what he believed were essentials to uh, the preaching of the gospel. Um, he founded he, – he was an advocate for Christian schools, uh, a huge advocate in the Netherlands um, and did some important work in that regard. He was a politician. He founded uh, what's called the Anti-Revolutionary Party. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was the first modern political party uh, in the Netherlands. Um, and it was very much, once again, like it, he, he came to power. He was eventually prime minister of the Netherlands uh, through, uh, in part, through expanding the vote to the common people. Like he, he literally increased suffrage in the Netherlands. Um, and yeah, he founded the Free University. I could go on and on and on and on. Um, but so he had this this outsized impact. He's this larger than life sort of character. He also had three nervous breakdowns in his lifetime, which is quite understandable given uh, his output. Um, but uh, the legacy he left, and there were other intelligent people, younger contemporaries like Herman Bovink, who taught theology at the Free University, um, and others who have continued kind of his his train of thought um, and, and taken it in their very much their own creative directions as well. Um, Herman Dewey Weird, for example, I think uh, has a very unique take in many ways, very different than Kuiper, but also clearly inspired by him. Uh, and what it, it, I guess the, the neo part is that Kuiper was very concerned with the issues of his day. It wasn't just theology for theology's sake. It wasn't just even, okay, we're going to focus on, pastoral care and that sort of thing, all of which are good and which he absolutely did care about. Um, But he cared about things like 
the plight of the working poor in the midst of the Industrial Revolution. Um, this was a huge thing. In fact, he gave a famous speech called The Social Question in the Christian Religion. Uh, and he's looking around him. Again, he's, he's in Europe uh, in the 19th century. He's in 1891, the same year as uh, Pope Leo XIII's encyclical Reum Nervarum, which starts the Roman Catholic social uh, thought tradition. Uh, and this a quote, he says, socialism is in the air. The social wind, which can at any moment turn into a storm is swelling the sails of the ship of state. And it may safely be said that the social question has become the question, the burning life question at the close of the century. Um, he was very concerned. And on the one hand, he, he was willing to concede that the socialists uh, had some um, at least good intentions behind their approach. And he even liked the idea that they, they were offering a whole, what he called the architectonic critique of the institutions and structures of society, uh, but he very much rejected their solutions, uh, especially in the more Marxist variety, which is atheistic and materialistic. Um, he was a Calvinist. Uh, he believed in God and the providence of God. Um, and so his alternative that he develops um, is this understanding of common grace and sphere sovereignty, um, that the Christian's role in life is not limited to what we do on Sunday and what we do in the church, uh, but there are Christian business people and Christian politicians and Christian educators and Christian editorialists. Kuiper happened to be all of these things all at once, right? Um, but they're Christian farmers, Christian dock workers in, in Amsterdam, right? Uh, all of these things, he thought, had uh, their own dignity. And uh, they had a principle by which they were organized uh, and therefore boundaries and sovereignty, Uh that other people, uh, other spheres of life, other areas, circles of life, um, could not violate uh, without there being some injury to the social good, um, and frankly, to the glory of God, in his opinion. So that's my, my I guess, roundabout uh, summary of neo-Calvinism. That's It comes mostly from Kuiper. There are some, uh, Grun von Prinster, his mentor, uh, probably deserves some credit as well, and there, there were others in his time, but um, very much traced to Abraham Kuiper, and that's, that's usually... Uh, Kuiper usually turns up in any, <laughs> in any paper or discussion of neo-Calvinism, and rightly so. So there's this idea of taking these old truths and articulating them in a new form to the modern world mm -hmm. and to address not merely the churchly sort of questions of church polity, of doctrine, of, um, of prayer, of the mm -hmm. traditional, of, you know, of theology, but to address them to all of life. And one of those spheres is of course economics. Yeah. So what what is what is some of what are some of the things that Kuiper or some of these other neo-Calvinist figures you mentioned sort of the plight of the of, of the working class in the nineteenth century as sort of a locus of thinking about economics. How did they think through this? And um and is this an ongoing project? Is this an ongoing tradition? And yeah. is this is this part of what part of what the the folks presenting the papers will be doing? Yes. So yes to all. Uh, I mean, this the nineteenth century is is very fascinating in that the idea of social Christianity was an ecumenical 
concept. So you have, again, the Roman Catholic tradition developing at the same time. Um, you have Lutherans, um, maybe a little bit later, especially with like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but you have a lot of legal theorists and moralists who even use the terms uh, of spheres. They, they talk about social spheres, although use them some use the term somewhat differently than Kuiper at times. Um, and you have, uh, especially in the United States, the idea of the social gospel tradition, which is actually quite various. Um, Usually we think of maybe one or two figures, but there, there's a lot of variety there and um, very much focused, again, on the working poor, um, focused on issues of, um, you know, prohibition was one of the big causes of the social gospel. Uh, but they were worried about about domestic abuse and alcoholism and things like that. You know, they were they worried about these very tangible uh, but widespread social issues. And they they wanted more than just an individualized approach. Uh, I don't in. And all these cases, I wouldn't presume that they they didn't want or didn't care about an individualized approach. They just they looked and they said, "There's there's more going on here. We have to take a step back and we have to get a more Christian perspective on society before we can approach these issues." Um, so there was an economic focus right from the start. Um, that said, at the time, uh, there wasn't exactly what we would call, at least in terms of uh, the academic discipline, economics at all. What there was was political economy, and political economy is more of a hybrid uh, sort of discipline where you, economists had – they believe themselves to be part of a moral science. In fact, it was about at this time that you start to maybe get uh, some of the mathematization of economics and the um, – the sense that well, some of some of this is is value free. Some of this is positivistic. Uh, whereas today, that's kind of the majority um, of how people approach economics and presume economics. That a lot of economists will say, well, I, I'm just in analyzing uh, the situation. I'm not a moralist. And in some ways, I think that's admirable. They're admitting that there are limits to their sphere um, and limits to their their competence. Um, but there can be some problems with that as well because then, well, what what good? What good is it if you can't tell us what it's for and how to use it? Um, all you can do is give an analysis. So, um, the the Calvinist tradition, uh, neo Calvinist tradition, Kuiper in particular, uh, has a lot of tools for navigating that. Um, Kuiper, uh, in his most famous quote from his Sphere Sovereignty speech, uh, says, "Oh, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest, and there's not one square inch over." Uh, in our in any domain of life over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Uh, his his meaning there being that we we can't just silo off our lives, compartmentalize our lives. These things have their own dignity and sovereignty, and yet they also have a common mission under Christ, who is sovereign over all, who is the source of all authority and power in our social world. Um, and so. Calvinists have continued this theme, and so have other Christians, of trying to root themselves as deeply as possible in the Christian tradition, while at the same time uh, having their eyes open to the world around them and to what good they can do and what good needs to be done um, in the world. And so some of our the papers that will be presented are uh, – Historical in nature, they're looking at Kuiper or the Free University um, or the Anti-Revolutionary Party and the developments uh, of their economic engagement. But some are more constructive. Uh, one paper is going to be about Bitcoin, uh, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> um, there's there's a lot of things, and of course, uh, uh, our keynote speaker, Dr. Jordan Baller of the um, 
Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. Is that correct? That's uh, correct. Director of Research there. Uh, he's going to be our keynote lecturer, um, and he'll be speaking. Uh, he'll be giving a longer lecture. Um, he'll be speaking about, um, you know, is Homo economicus the the economic man, the presumed behavior model of e- economics? Is it sovereign in its own sphere? So he's going to tackle this question directly, I presume. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm I'm excited for that and. Uh, um, so it's going to be both. It's going to be all those things. We're going to be looking at neo-Calvinism in a historical sense, but we're also going to be talking about what does this look like, look like for you know responsible Christians today. Excellent. Um, so this is a this is a live program, and yes. the Acton Institute, um, through partnership with Lexham Press, we're doing mm-hmm. these these collected works of public theology. There's 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 one volume yet to come out, uh, but it should be out soon. Um, so this is a live and constructive program. And we, one of the things that you shared with me uh, a couple of weeks ago were a list of all of the economists that Kuiper cited. Oh, and yeah. um, that list is interesting because it's heavy on the German historical school. Yes. And so there's even there's 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 a sense in which there's a lot of work to be done in bringing these together, too, because of both advances in economics since Kuiper's time and also sort of blind spots that Kuiper himself had mm-hmm. during his own time in his own understanding of economics. Yeah, Dr. Um, Joost Hengsmengel, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that right, uh, he's presenting a paper, and the, the paper I shared was by him, actually, uh, a few weeks ago, and and he talks about how, yeah, Kuiper was familiar with a lot of different socialists of his time and a lot of the, the German historical school. Um, he's... Not sure whether Kuiper actually interacted directly with, say, Adam Smith, though. He seems to have interacted more through secondary sources, and that might have skewed his perspective. Um, I think a lot of times Kuiper agrees more with Smith than he lets on uh, because maybe he wasn't just sitting down with the wealth of nations. He was getting it through somebody else who maybe wasn't accurately describing Smith's perspective. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's something, again, getting back to I think that that root of scholarship of – knowing that you don't know, um, that certainly applied even to great minds like Kuiper's. And there, there's always, everybody has blind spots, right? And um, that's one of the the amazing things about coming together in community, in the sphere of scholarship, right? And contributing to um, the advancement of human knowledge. I mean, the idea of a university, we think of, and I always thought of, uh, a college campus, but it's supposed to be this idea of universal human knowledge, right? That that it's something that we are contributing to every time we are advancing any particular discipline or topic. Um, and no one can just do that all on their own. No, you know, no one is omniscient. <laughs> That's one of the properties of being human is that there are limits to our knowledge. Um, but we can do it together and we can do it by the grace of God. Um, and that's what academic conferences are for. So there have been a lot a lot of the names we've referenced have been Dutch. Yes. All of them have been neo-Calvinist. Yes. Now, we have three people in this room right now, none of whom are neo-Calvinists. That's and yet true. there's some enthusiasm. Um, how do you think, you know, this is a conference that's obviously interesting for folks that are interested in that neo-Calvinist tradition. What do people coming from different backgrounds what do they have to contribute and what can they learn from 
from this tradition and its interaction with economics. Before I answer that, why don't we actually turn the question towards Sarah, uh, given that you're Roman Catholic, what are you looking forward to? Uh, or what are you curious about in, in those terms, about uh, you know what might be able to be learned from neo-Calvinism or what you think uh, your own tradition might have to offer? Sure. Um, I think there's a lot that I don't know about Calvinism in general, um, coming from a different tradition, I do think there's an emphasis on um, ecumenism that mm-hmm. working at Acton has sort of shown me and that I really appreciate. And so I want to learn a lot more about that tradition and particularly in the academic sphere, how that affects his other views. So his views on religion and religious tradition, I'm curious how that affects his views on economics, like you were talking about, all the different spheres that sort of connect. How much of that is shared with my own tradition and how much of that maybe do I agree or disagree with? And I'm excited for it because I think it's really important to have these conversations and these dialogues, even if I don't fully understand his background completely or where he's coming from. Um, it's it's neat to be surrounded by other people who are firmly entrenched in that tradition where they can make a claim or make an argument based on their reading of something that he wrote. And I can determine in my own mind if I agree with that or not, how much of it is shared with my own tradition. I think that really contributes to cohesion in the body of Christ and dialogue among members mm. um, on academic level, on a social level. And hopefully that can bear a lot of fruit. Yeah. I, you know, one thing I find about Kuiper that I think makes him so approachable, I'm Greek Orthodox, uh, but I've written four paper, academic papers that have been published on, on Kuiper, um, and I keep coming back to him, um, in part because uh, I don't think anyone can agree with everything Kuiper wrote. He, he just has this, this kind of rambling, uh, amazing mind, but he also has all kinds of kind of bizarre ideas about a lot of things. I, I mean, I don't even think any Calvinist would say they agree 100% with Kuiper, but that that actually relieves a lot of pressure. I don't have to go into it with all the defenses up of, oh, no, you know, here here comes this ironclad fortress of an intellectual tradition. Um, I think one of the, the virtues about Kuiper's understanding of, you know, this development of God's common grace in these different spheres of society throughout history is that it's it's kind of an open dialectic. It's It's continually growing and adapting. It's like a, a flower that's blossoming and bearing fruit and growing into a tree. And um, that's that's kind of how he understands God's work throughout history. And in that sense, no one can ever grasp it. Even, even someone in one moment uh, having a certain level of omniscience would be insufficient the next moment because something else would have happened, right? Um, and so it's a, it's, I think it's great to be challenged. It's great to uh, see things from another perspective. And sometimes that helps you see your own tradition from a different perspective. You say, well, wait a minute, we, we have that too. I didn't, I, mean, I, you know, I didn't even notice it till I heard somebody else talking about it, but we have that too. And you, it gets really exciting in that sense. Well, one of the things unfolding in this dialectic of inquiry is going to be this <laughs> conference next yeah. week Yes, on fr- uh, Friday, uh, October 8th. We're going to include registration information in the show notes Dylan, as a last sort of question, who, as somebody, as somebody who's heard this, who's been intrigued a little bit, who are the, who are the sorts of folks that that you think would get something out of this? We, we've we've talked about you know, uh, you know, 
confessional boundaries needn't mm-hmm. inhibit somebody from from attending and from and from getting some profit out of this. What are the other sort of characteristics? What should what should what should participants expect? Um, I would say this is a conference for anyone who has that intellectual curiosity, who cares about these topics, about especially faith and economics, um, perhaps Calvinism in particular, although I don't think that should be a boundary, um, but who who comes at it with a perspective of wanting to further their own education. Um, in fact, many of these presenters are college professors, so they're, they're trained educators, right? Uh, again, they're presenting their new research. Um, it's not quite the same as like going to a, a lecture hall um, and hearing their class or whatever, um, but there's there's just something to learn, and it's it's you get this opportunity. Not only do you hear this paper, and maybe you hear other people's, or you ask your own question during the Q and A, but lunch is included, uh, which I think is important to mention <laughs> uh, with the cost. Um, I always like things that involve food, um, but the lunch is purposefully long so that people can sit and can talk, and maybe they can go out and get coffee somewhere if they want, and just come back. You know, when when the next panel starts. Um, we want that time for networking, uh, for interaction, for organic uh, conversations to develop um, so that, you know, you got a burning question. You're like, oh, I'm, I can't fit that into the Q&A or I think it's a little off topic. Well, don't worry. You'll get your chance. Uh, you know, you show up and, and if there's something you're, you're thinking over in these terms, these are people – who are incredibly talented who can help you think it over. And I mean, I, I guess that's, that's one way to look at it is, uh, and I, and I think that's kind of the point of education, frankly, is, is it helps you think. <laughs> and if it's something that, uh, you know, you don't want to go it alone, uh, you don't want to be on your own, but maybe, you know, you can't enroll in a whole college course or anything like that, but you want to have that continual experience of being intellectually challenged. Uh, well, then this, that's, this conference is for you. Excellent. Dylan, Sarah, thank you so much for being with us on this special edition of Act in Line. Again, the conference is on Friday, October 8th, 2021. We'll have registration information in the show notes. So if you are interested in neo-Calvinism and modern economics, if you are interested in reflecting on what religion in general has to bear on economics and how Christians historically have approached these social questions, this is for you. This is for the curious, and this is for, um, this is to be part of that sort of ongoing intellectual project that each of us contribute to in the development of science in their own spheres. <laughs>